Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. And please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Good morning, Sarah. Here we are for another chapter review. Good morning, Louise. And a heavy, heavy chapter. It is. God. (laughs) So before we get into a heavy chapter, what are your plans for this morning? Well, see Woody back there. Little does he know (laughs) he's getting his nails cut. I like to call it a pedicure. Oh, he's having. And then we're going. Hopefully, it doesn't rain. We're going to a birthday party for his friend Duke, who's who's turning three. Oh, he's turning. Duke is like a giant golden (laughs) retriever mix. Oh, come on! Brown with a black rubber ball in his mouth. Oh, Duke. What what are you doing? What are you going to get him for his birthday? By the way. Well, I have a DNA test that doesn't test for Woody's breed. So what I think is Woody's breed. So I might give that to Duke so she can know for sure what he is. Perfect. That goes along yeah, with I mean, so adoption. it's not really for Duke. It's for Duke's mom. <laughs> well, we want Duke to know about himself. Yes. The more you know about yourself as an adopted being, the better. <laughs> what am I doing? I'm right now monitoring Duchess in the background who's taking her sock off and is licking and licking and throwing treats at her. While Duchess. <laughs> She's got an ongoing injury and she sees me on here and is like, oh, getting the sock off and I'm going to get yeah. thrown at me. Mom's busy. I'm going to take my sock off. Yep. <laughs> She's got acting out behavior in her. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Speaking Woody, of what he has sexual deviant behavior is he humps dogs that he <laughs> he ties into this chapter a little yes, bit. Yes, he does. He does. <laughs> so the chapter, what is it? Oh boy, the antisocial tendency. And it starts off with a essay or pair from Sartre about the fake child. Um, amazing. I don't want to read the whole thing, but Basically, whenever the child tries to reach beyond the bureaucracy of which he seems an emanation to his true origins, he finds that his birth coincides with a gesture of rejection. He was driven out the very moment he was brought into the world. It's an amazing. If anybody has, of course, Betty Jean Lifton, chapter right. eight, Journey of the Adopted Self. If you have this, you need to read this whole. It's long for us to read, but it's quite. It's it, this bu- is, I think, the mo- <laughs> I found this to be the most intense chapter of the book. Me too. So, so far. far. <laughs> and and some, you know, she talked about the, at this time when she wrote the book, there were not statistics for suicides and adoptees, but there have yes. since been. And as we've discussed before, but we will note again, adoptees are four times more likely to either attempt suicide yes. or commit suicide than non-adoptees. Yes. They make up how, like we're 2% of the population, but mm-hmm. make up how much of juvenile hall and prisons, like mm-hmm. 30% or something huge. And, yeah, it's huge. It's huge. Really yeah, huge. She didn't have the statistics. You're right. I was reading that thinking, oh, she didn't know the numbers then. Right. And she got reamed sort of for and bringing it, it up. It's interesting to me. It still seems like, because I was, after reading the chapter, I went and looked online to see like if, you know, adoption syndrome, which was a term coined we'll find his name in a few minutes. It's still a very controversial diagnosis and it's not in the DSM. Oh, you, you can know. really, when you did, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So yeah. It's what, very controversial. There, I think 
again, because it's nobody wants to highlight problems with adoption. No, his name is Louis Felder and he was a mm. Mexican psychologist. I don't, like, is he the one that, I don't think he's the one that termed that, coined it. Why do I keep getting that mixed adopt, up? Oh no, he coined adopted child pathology, which scared the heck out of everybody. <laughs> yeah. And then they turned, it was adoption syndrome. I'll find it. We yeah. can always add it in later or put it in our show notes. Well, it starts off with the antisocial tendency and the angry self. Well, mm-hmm. first, the thing that hit me the first is she gets into this whole thing about you know, this adoptive Mormon boy, juvenile delinquent, but the last little chapter before she gets into the angry self here, the last sentence, therapists should not be asking why adopted Mm -hmm. children are angry, but why shouldn't they? Yes. I mean, when she wrote this book, I think that was actually a big flip on the head of what therapists would ask a child. Right. And like we've talked about before, like all my years of therapy, nobody highlighted my adoption or even thought about it as an issue. And recently when I was talking to my former mother-in-law who was renewing her psychology license, she said that they never went through that in her schooling. Never. Like she never thought about adoption as being a thing. She just thought it was a wonderful thing. And this was a psychologist that practiced for many, many years. Yeah. And, you know, recently I was at a dinner with a lot of therapists. They happen to all be therapists because they're friends with a therapist and they all have had some sort of training in it. Now, even if they're not very well versed in it, they know it's a thing and to refer someone, which to me was like, oh, thank God. Just hearing that was. Yeah. <laughs> and it says here too, the antisocial behavior of the adoptee is the unconscious strategy they seize upon to feel authentic, vital and alive. Their form of self-cure. Oh, self-care. Makes yeah. me sad. Just all the words. There's something. Oh, this kind of was more personal to me. Because I didn't have a lot of like, you know, I did do a lot of acting out, but I did steal little things from my mom. Yeah. I gets into the stealing and running away, which I Mm -hmm. thought of you. And I used to dream about running away. That was my big fantasy is running away. I didn't know if that was a lot of kids, but she did say here, some people have become so successful at splitting off their feelings and keeping up a cheerful facade as adults that they don't even know they're angry. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because right before that, it says adopted children who get the message that not only were they chosen, but they were chosen to be the light of their parents' lives, often do not feel entitled to express any negative feelings, such as grief or anger at being cut off from their origins. Yeah. I think that's a lot of a lot of adoptees. You know, here I tell you that you're adopted, and then that's the end of the topic. Yeah. Some of that talking about the psychologist Stanley Schneider, who directs the residential treatment center for adolescents in Jerusalem sees the adopted child's internal world as a seething cauldron containing four elements of anger. The anger of the parent who gave up or parents who gave up the child for adoption, the anger of the child's adoptive parents, the child's anger at the natural parents and the child's anger at the adoptive parents. Seething cauldron. That we're carrying all of that inside us. Yeah. And And I feel like I still carry. Yeah. Right. Well, you are carrying it. It's like the burden. We just had a, someone we interviewed that will be on who said he posted something and everybody was angry at him. He's 50 something years old, not allowed to have his feelings because others were hurt. And he's like, I'm not doing this anymore for everybody yeah. else. On that part that you were talking about with the anger, they may explode into tremendous rage when it manifests itself in destructive and acting out behaviors. And just the explosive rage part, because she does get into some heavy stuff with the rage and anger coming up. Yes, which is what we should. Well, so there's the cumulative adoption trauma 
And, you know, it's like there's no longer a secret that there's a disproportionate number of adoptees in hospital adolescent psychiatric wards and residential treatment centers across the country, but professionals disagree about the cause. The rationale one hears that middle-class adoptive families are more inclined to seek psychotherapy does not explain why their adopted children are disturbed enough to need it. And there's a proneness of insecure adoptive parents to hospitalize children unnecessarily. And then she says she suspects another cause might be the difficulty that many young adoptees have repressing their grief and anger and sense of powerlessness in the closed adoption center system, which has been called a seedbed for a personality disorder. A big seedbed for personality disorder there. That's, I mean... Just huge. That's when she got into the most alarming professional paper on adopted children was delivered in the mid 70s. This is where we talked about Mexican psychiatrist Louis Fader, who used the terminology adopted child pathology, and he studied over 200 adoptees Mm -hmm. and people rejected it. They did not want to hear it. And I think it's still what you're talking about. For a plethora of reasons, I'm sure not the least maybe of being the adoption industry itself. I don't know if I could find it specifically. Here it is. It was David Kirshner who coined adopted children's syndrome. And the children's symptoms include pathological lie. By the way, I highlighted ones that I had checked the boxes. I didn't check all boxes, but most of them. Pathological lying, stealing, truancy, learning problems, running away, setting fires, sexual promiscuity, an absence of normal guilt and anxiety, and extreme antisocial behavior that often get them in trouble with the law. He found their personalities were characterized by impulsivity, low frustration tolerance, manipulativeness, and deceptive charm that covered over a shallowness of attachment. (laughs) There's so much in that. It's loaded. I'm glad you didn't check all the boxes, by the way, if you're a fire starter. I I wasn't a fire starter. I didn't have learning problems. Later, I just had other problems that interfere with my schooling. Exactly. uh, That interfered with schooling. No, and I had a few too, and I had a pretty good situation. And I was like, oh, lying. I was a masterful liar, stealing and sneaking, hiding, and just the low self-esteem that she gets into in here that you may come off a certain way, but you're inside you have such low self-esteem because she asked one child about his anger. And he said, I just, or maybe as a grown man, he said, I'm not angry. And his friend said, you are angry. Yeah, you are angry. Yeah. And he looked at himself for, you know, reflection and said, you know, it's really just self-hatred. And it just broke my heart because I think so many people walk around with this stuff. So I like that she gets into, and I wrote me, the child, they begin to accumulate from the time the child is separated from the mother at birth, learns that he is not the biological child of family of his family, and then disassociates in order to live as if he does not need to know whose child he is. She says, That she thinks it's like on a broad continuum, right? Every, Mm -hmm. all of us, the closed adoption system reveals that virtually all adoptees can be located somewhere on the continuum, even if mostly on the lower end, as they struggle with issues around self-esteem, lack of trust, and fear of abandonment, to name a few. That would be Uh, acting out adoptees. Those with antisocial and self-destructive tendencies make up the broad middle range in a small extremely disturbed subgroup who exhibit criminal and murderous behaviors are on the pathological far end of the continuum. Which is what they didn't want published. Exactly. They did not want adopted parents to know about that side, even the middle of the continuum. And they even said they hid that 
you know, don't publish that. Don't put that in any papers. Yeah. I was on the middle, like the self-destructive and I was on the low end, like the self-esteem. And she even says, I don't know where it is, but she took something out of her paper. She was, Oh, that was um, because she was pleasing herself. She was, she was at a conference and now it was talking about suicide that Mm -hmm. there are no statistics. Of course there are now, as you did. She said at the speech, there are no statistics on the number of adoptees who attempt suicide or those who succeed. I told a group of professionals, I added that if there were, we might be surprised at the large number. And then they asked her to take that out. Before we get to that, though, going through the whole thing, she goes out and she breaks down the acting out, lying and stealing, running away. Okay, so lying and stealing. Yes, for me. Running away. Yes, for me. Drug, alcohol, and food addiction. Yes, for me. (laughs) And then, you know, I was looking back to feel about suicide stuff. Of course, I never attempted it. But it definitely had crossed my mind over the years how much easier it would be if I weren't alive, not be alive. It's funny you brought up the suicide because I actually circled that too, because I never attempted it either. But I was, I dreamed about it a lot. I thought about a lot. I wrote poetry about it. There's definitely something in there like, well, it's better if I'm not here. Or just somewhere in the back of like pre-parenting, it's always an option. It's always an option, which I don't think every teen goes through that. Yeah. I'd be curious to even talk to friends now about that. That are I think I'm going to start asking friends yeah. that. <laughs> I know. Because some of the stuff you're like, oh, wait a second. That's nothing I've even talked to anybody about. It's just something inside. Well, so then she gets into the really extreme stuff in the last part. Let's yeah. touch on the suicide stuff too, because it is. it was super, super. sad. You know, all the... I mean, here's a typical sampling from the questionnaires on the subject of suicide from adult adoptees who on the surface are leading satisfactory lives. A man adopted at 10 weeks. I was always Mm -hmm. suicidal as far back as five or six. I remember saying, I wish I were dead. A woman adopted at six weeks. I had no sense of self as an adolescent. I felt unreal, split. I was depressed most of the time. I thought I was crazy. I attempted suicide a few times. A man adopted at three weeks. I got depressed occasionally usually when I wasn't stoned and even contemplated suicide. A woman adopted at four weeks. I often felt suicidal and attempted it twice, had my stomach pumped once and a shotgun taken from under the chin the other Mm. time. I could never cut myself. A man adopted at three months. I felt I wanted to commit suicide, but I was already dead, so I didn't have to. And then there's quite a few stories that she goes into of adoptees who did commit suicide. You know, and do you use as an adult, the language I've caught myself now, my husband will tell me where I'll say something like, you probably just wish I was dead. Or if I died, would you be sad? I pull that out sometimes, even now in like, not even an argument, like, you know, would you be sad if I was dead? (laughs) And my husband's like, you're a fatalist. I'm like, you know what? I don't think I'm a fatalist. I think I have some deeper stuff here, but I I don't, I don't have anybody to ask that question. Woody, 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 would you be sad? <laughs> but do you think it even now? Every so often, it co- it's not about suicide anymore. I, I actually, like- weirdly enough, I thought recently, like, whose life would really be affected if I died? Becker. Everybody else would move on. But I mean, it would be hard on Becker. That's, That's what I really actually thought. Too. Like, everybody else would be fine and move on. They, you know, lots of sorry. Oh, I can't believe this happened on Facebook. Really and liked then, her. Uh, owned a truck with her. <laughs> <one> to- <laughs> <laughs> my mom would get over it, but well, you know, <laughs> I'd have to get a new podcast partner, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Woody. Woody would have a hard time. Woody would have a hard time. No, I think that too. I think, well, if it weren't for my son, nobody would really miss me. I do that. I do that when I'm in my lowest points. I for sure do, which I don't think is that normal either. But I'm glad that I'm aware of it and that we're doing this work and reading these things because I feel a community with others who feel this way. Yeah. But I didn't know. We've never asked each other that. I know. So... Oh, and on to the darkest of the dark. Let's just say I didn't know the son of Sam was adopted. (gasps) Nor did I or the other guy. Oh, my God. Joel Rifkin. The Ripper. I had no idea. I mean, Berkowitz even talked about it. The son of Sam. He was bright and well read and actually talked about his what happened. And said, you need to you should be looking into this so you don't have another one of me down the road. That's all. This is what they didn't want published for adopted parents. Yeah. And it's interesting that it's yeah. show and then the, the killing of parents, right? So it says oh. evidence shows that a large number of murders of one or both parents are committed by teenage or young adult adoptees, those adopted soon after birth as well as later. Though criminal lawyer Paul Moans puts the statistic at 15 or 20 to one adoptees over non-adoptees. That's huge. I told you about the line. I saw that where the boy was the nicest kid and just the most well-adjusted kid from Colombia and an adopted mom. She was an adoptee herself, adopted this boy and another boy that she gave back. So that was half the dateline right there, which no one really focused on how bizarre that was. And he killed her really angrily one day, took an axe to her head and didn't know why. And then you know why? There was a guy in here who said, that he killed his parents because they were kicking him out. And it was a fight or flight response. Yes. And that's what was happening to this kid. She was saying, you have to leave it. You can't do this, this, and this. And he had been this perfect child. And all of a sudden he took an extra head. Like varsity player and good boy. This I highlighted too. Some adoptive parents among my readers seemed more alarmed by the mention of his syndrome than by the crime itself. What is that? Well, that's again, they make it about them. Well, surely, you know, but the one killing that was set this whole, she gets into the Patrick Stevens story about a kid who they think maybe had split, you know. Yeah. Personality. Yeah. But it's not called that anymore. But anyway, Patrick was adopted at 16 months in Michigan by a professional couple who had requested a child with a high IQ. Just the whole (laughs) thought about like, A checklist for the baby you're going to adopt is just gross to me. They totally failed him, which is not to justify his murder remotely, but they totally failed him at every step of the way down to like, you know, crying out for help. And just the whole story again, for anybody, this whole book is worth this one chapter. Yeah. On both sides. I think if you're going to adopt a child now, and we see some adopted parents on Twitter and different things reaching out. You have to educate yourself because then you'll have, you'll be open and more successful and whatever your reasons are. I mean, if it's not a baby, maybe you're going into foster care adoption, whatever. You should know these things. Know what it is you're, you know, understand where this child yeah. is coming from and the deep pain they're in. And I swear if I had this book and then knew my Enneagram number, uh, <laughs> it would I would have like changed the course of my life. <laughs> In my professional world, we're doing Enneagrams for our happy hour coming up because of you. Yep. So that will be interesting. I I just listened to another podcast this morning. I mean, you know, it's a 3,000-year-old. It's uh, really neat. Bill's finally going to do his, by the way. So I'm going to guess him at a five, but then I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I am guessing Bill at a five. When's he going to do it? 
I'll make him do it this week and we'll come back and report. Okay. <laughs> Bill's like, keep me off the podcast. <laughs> you can tell me in private. I will. <laughs> okay. So to wrap this up, prevention lies in educating society. The attorney of this one case said that knowledge of this case should help prevent such things from happening in the future. There's yeah, much that we can learn. I think it's about education. As and always, I, everything it, is. Everything history. is. And, and actually, this really gets into something that we're going to discuss with our next guest, who's really going to be an enlightening, I think, for a yes. lot of people to hear his story. Yes, he really has. He's very in touch. Excited to have him. We'll see Me you in too. a few minutes. And also, don't forget to tell Duke that Duchess says happy birthday as well. I will. Woody, are you excited for your party? <laughs> Woody she just sits she there in the background. Anyone on YouTube, you can see Woody. <laughs> Fascinated by this. Yeah. <laughs> All right. See you soon. See you soon. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Louise and I talked about it for months, and we were intimidated until we heard about Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. Podcasting isn't hard. Believe me, if Louise and I could figure it out, anyone can. We got a mic, some headphones, parked ourselves in our closets, and that was it. Buzzsprout did the rest. You get a great looking podcast website and you can track all of your analytics to see how your podcast is doing. So if you follow the link in our show notes, it lets Buzzsprout know we sent you and you get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. And bonus, you help support our show. Hi, I'm just going to break in here. As a friend of the podcast and a fellow Patreon, I want to join Louise and Sarah in thanking everyone who has reached out. Frankly, I've been astounded at the number of listeners from across the world who have shared their unique stories with our podcasters. I believe in the healing power of stories. As a Patreon, I've found such pleasure in supporting the podcast and in seeing how adoptees find their people, I know how much Louise and Sarah are moved by each Patreon support. Their immediate goal is to be able to air the podcast weekly rather than bi-weekly. Eventually, they would like to advocate for more effective ways of adopting children. If you would like to support this important work, either once or in an ongoing way, Simply go to patreon.com, then in the search bar, type adoption colon the making of me. Thank you all, each in your own way, for bringing us together. And now let's rejoin our hosts. So good morning. Hi, guys. We're here for another episode, and we're super excited today. We have Matthew Charles, and he's a poet and an adoptee. And we found him because he is featured in Severance Magazine coming out by the time this airs. Everybody will have seen all about him. And he's just really spiritual. And we wanted him on the podcast right away. And you can find him at MatthewCharles.Poet. And also, MatthewCharlesPoet.com. Thank you. <laughs> MatthewCharlesPoet.com. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes too. Yes. So welcome. 
Yes. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, for being me. here. Really nice to have you. Yeah, it's really good to be here. We're super excited. So basically, we just dive right in and tell us your story. Yeah. So born in 95, my twin and I were born in Kentucky and we were put up for adoption. And so within a couple months, we were adopted out by this elderly white couple. And Both together? Yes, together. Oh, yeah, we were adopted together. So that's that's good for like genetic mirroring, I guess, but it was bad for other reasons we'll get into later. Okay, yeah, I want to hear <laughs> uh, Yeah, and so it was a closed adoption, but it also wasn't. I've talked to different people as I've gotten older about it, and it's a very complicated situation that I'm still trying to figure out some of these details because different people are saying different things. So, yeah, I'm not sure. But, you know, the interesting thing was like the adoption agency had a cutoff age and it was 45. And our adoptive mother was 45 and our adoptive father was 57. So, like, perhaps technically shouldn't have gone down, but whatever. Did they have any uh, other children? Well, yes. It was both of their second marriages. And so, in our adoptive father's first marriage, he'd had two kids, but one, his son, died in like 90 for something in a skiing accident and he is survived by his sister who is alive and well in st louis i think she's a pastor she's like in her 40s so she didn't grow up in the home with my brother and i like in the home it was just my brother and i we were the only kids there but yeah have an adoptive sister out in st louis and we'd go out and visit her sometimes as well but it was more like a aunt relationship she has two kids and they're a lot closer to our age, our nephews, but like one is like two years younger than us and the other is like 34. So like they felt more like brothers than she felt like a sister. She was more like an aunt. Yeah. But so we move out to our adoptive father. He was a psychiatrist. And so he'd get jobs. His whole pattern was like he'd work until the point of burnout and then he'd uproot our family and we'd move. So, you know, we're born in Kentucky and then we moved huh? to Phoenix, Arizona. And then we moved to Klamath Falls in Oregon. And then we moved to Winchester in Oregon. And then we moved to Roseburg. And he's just getting different jobs in these different places. And these four or five moves happened all before we're like five, six years old. And um, he was already 57 and kind of making yeah. these changes. Had that been his pattern prior to bringing you guys into the family? I don't know. I do not know. He died. So... I do not know. He died when we were 13. So he was like 72, had pulmonary fibrosis that had been ailing him for, I don't know, five, six years. Well, actually, no, like a almost decade, I think, actually. They didn't know it when it started. They thought he was just getting like cold in the Mondays and stuff. But then so it got worse. So it was like, actually, dog, this pulmonary fibrosis. So we grew up in this place that I call a mansion. It wasn't really a mansion, but it's just the biggest place we ever lived. Had like a full basketball court in the backyard, like a cherry blossom garden and big property in my mind. That was in Oregon? That was in Oregon. Yeah, that was in okay. Winchester. And we, we go bankrupt. And mm. so I'm like eight years old then. And so we move into this duplex. And yeah, that like growing up was this thing where like, so my adopted mother and I are estranged-ish at this point in my life. But in the last like couple of weeks, I've been like reaching out to her to talk because like I'm writing this memoir and I'm realizing, yo, I don't remember things yeah. like I remember mm -hmm. that I had this deep 
fear towards my twin like there was this memory from when i'm like seven and like i remember like i was in our playroom and i was like my brother was supposed to have gone to some friend's house to play and i was like excited that he was gone and i was gonna play and have a good time and then that situation didn't work out he ended up coming back home early and i just remember this like fear inside of me and so was he was your identical twin or fraternal no nah, nah, he was fraternal yeah and so i called up my adoptive mom was just like hey like i know that i was afraid of him even then i don't know why and she was like oh you don't remember this thing that happened he destroyed a house he'd do this and this and that or these different things or we had this family therapist who you know we're like six, seven years old who'd come to our house in the evenings. And I was like, I did not remember. Then she told me a story, you know, like my brother, he has diagnosed with some mental conditions that kind of made him fairly erratic and violent growing up. And so it was a very abusive home in that sense. He demanded a lot of attention from our adopters. And then, you know, like Nancy Verrier talks about in The Primal Wound, like if there's like two adoptees in the same house, like one is like the compliant one and one is kind of more aggressive, who's like pushing boundaries and stuff. And so in some ways that was the dynamic between my twin and I, like my adopted mom, she told me that like when we were four, something like that, we was playing and my brother was like hitting his, we were playing with like action figures or whatever and he was like hitting his dudes like really hard and our adoptive dad was just like hey like why are your guys so angry and he was like they're mad because they don't know their real mom and i did not remember that like i remember like when we're six and seven and getting older like our adoptive parents specifically our mom she played the disciplinarian role more so she'd tell my brother to do this or that and he'd just be like, you know, I, I don't have to obey. You're not my real mom. I remember like hearing those things and like he wouldn't get treated well when things like that would happen. In general, you know, he was a violent person. And then our therapist would like give abusive advice for the ways that our doctor should treat my brother. So I'm in this home where, you know, my twin is incredibly violent, destructive, and then nobody's really checking in on me and then our adoptive parents specifically a mom because he actually's playing the disciplinarian role you know she's physically restraining my twin like body on top of him because this therapist told her that like yeah you know my brother when he gets in these states he's out of control and would comfort him as if you would do this because then he'd know that somebody could control him or some some like stupid shit like that but it wouldn't work. He'd get very mad that this was happening because that's not really how anybody should be treated like that. No. Um, and she, my doctor mom told me this story of like one time during like a family therapy session, like my brother just didn't really want to participate. He usually didn't really want to participate, but this time it was just a lot worse. And Pam, which is the family therapist name, like kicked him out the house and locked the door. And he's scared of the dark. She's coming over at night. He's scared of the dark. She kicked him out. He's like, please let me in. She's like, nah, if you're going to act like an animal, you can stay outside with that. How old is he at this time? Like seven? Like seven. Seven. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I'm in this house seeing all these things and seeing like, it's this great tension because like my brother's behavior, like the violence and all this stuff, like that endangered me and I knew that. So like that estranged our relationship. But then seeing... You know, sometimes he'd say right thing, you know, like as a kid, you talking about, and I'm a real mom, I don't have to obey you. It's this real reckoning with like adoptee grief, you know, mm-hmm. and our adoptive mom's response to that would be like, I'm the only mother you have. 
And so it's just like, I was estranged and afraid of my brother, but then I also didn't think that our adoptive parents were like really looking out for me. Like I kept being in these dangerous situations, but then also them never checking in on me. And like, just talking to my adoptive mom the last couple of weeks, she told me like, she's like, you know, I talked to your father and I'd ask like, do you think that Matthew's okay? And he'd be like, yeah, if he wasn't okay, he'd say something. And it was like, nah, I wouldn't say anything. I wasn't that kind of person. When I was in that time frame, there was this physical debilitation that I experienced. Like my lungs would stop working, like not like an asthma attack, but like, like an asthma attack, you're like, you're like struggling to breathe. Like I couldn't breathe. No inhale, no exhale, completely like enabled for minutes at a time. And I remember the first time that that happened, and like, yeah, just didn't know what was happening. And so like, I ran downstairs to, to our adoptive mom and I tried to like tell her that I couldn't breathe. But like, and in that moment I realized, oh, you can't talk when you can't breathe. Like you need breath to be able to talk. Didn't know that. So I'm just like, you know, make like whatever. And she's like, oh, we're playing charades. And she started guessing. Duh, 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 duh. And I'm like, no, like, I'm not saying anything, but I'm like, and she just doesn't understand. So I leave and then eventually I get my breath back. But that condition like ailed me from like the age of eight to like I was like 16. Wow. Um, Anxiety and trauma. So did that ever get diagnosed like as a panic disorder or anything like that? So, yeah, talking to my doctor Monday the other day, I was just like, I don't remember what's happened when we're in Winchester because some other things were happening that we can get into a little bit later. She was reminding me of that. And I told her, I was like, all right, well, but like when I st- first like couldn't breathe, like, what was y'all's response? And she was like, I don't remember that happening until we moved to Roseburg. And so that's when I'm like eight, nine years old. And I was like, all right, but I came to you and did it. She's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, but eventually like, yeah, she took me to a doctor and what they diagnosed it as was twitchy lungs, twitchy lungs. And they gave me, I don't know what it's called, but it was like this purple, like, circle thing that like oh. when I couldn't breathe I was supposed to like add like, bear. Sure. My yeah. son had it add bear. It's like a Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't yeah, help it because no. I didn't have asthma. I'm pretty sure it was like asthma medication, but it wasn't asthma. And you know, I was in this situation as well. Like as I look back on it, like I did not know that I could or should advocate for myself. Right. Like This morning, I went on a walk with my dog and I was reminded of this time when like went to a playground as a kid. And, you know, as a kid, like maybe you'll fall from the monkey bars or whatever and you'll skin your knee and then you'll look up to your mom like, am I okay? Like, let me just check real quick because I just don't know. And then if she like nods you off, you're like, cool, I'll go back to playing. So like as a kid, like where my adopted mom should tell me like, yeah, we thought if you weren't okay, you'd tell us. Whereas for me, I was like, I thought you would tell me I wasn't okay. I didn't know any other lifestyle than this abusive, terrorizing home that I was in. And so, you know, when I go to school, like I wouldn't tell people what's going on at home. I didn't know that other people's homes weren't like that. I had no clue. I just thought this was normal. So I didn't know I wasn't okay. And the lung thing got diagnosed is twitchy lung. Your body knew it wasn't okay. You're Something like, like that. Holding all this anxiety. Jumping back for a minute, what were the circumstances of your adoption? Um, and how old were you two? We were in the womb when it was being worked out. And so like our first mother, she had some drug issues 
And she was also sleeping with married man. (laughs) So that prompted the desire for them to put us up for adoption. And it was a private adoption. And yeah, our adoptive parents, like they were doctors, they PhDs and such. So like our biological mom, she was just thinking like, y'all will be economically fine. She also had said like, this is like really tough to say, but like, it's something I've been reflecting on because like, we just got in reunion like three, four weeks ago. And so like, she was just like telling me different things about the circumstances and about her life. And that was just really helping me. And so she said that like, you know, cause there was black families that wanted to adopt my 29 as well, but she chose a white family intentionally. And I was like, why is that? She said, well, one, their economic situation, we thought that'd be fine for y'all or good. Even like they had a real good situation. But then also she thought like, because they're white, that this wasn't her words. This is kind of how I interpret her words, but it means similar things. Like it was to create this dissonance in us to like know that like our real mom was really out there and that we'd like come looking for her. Like she didn't want us to forget her. So, oh, interesting. Um, yeah, she also apologized as soon as she said that. She was like, "Y'all, I was playing God. I shouldn't have done that, but that was what was up." And so, yeah, you know, growing up, we grew up in racial isolation, and so like I remember when we're in Winchester, like this period from like six to, to eight years old, like, because our adoptive dad also, he then moved out the house for a year, which was a situation I was just told like, yeah, he'll come visit on weekends or something like that. And da, 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 da. and I did not know that like child protective services was involved and they thought things which like, I'm not really able to say out loud on a podcast, but it was an investigation that was going on. And so he wasn't allowed legally to be around my brother and I unless our adoptive mom was present as well. I was not told that. So I'm just like, he's out at the manor. He's living there, whatever. Like, I'm not thinking that, like, they're going to get divorced or anything. It's not even in my mind. I was just like, all right, here's what's happening now. But I would like our biological father, Danny, he would send us birthday cards, I'm told. And so I remember, like, looking out the window and, like, imagining that, like, my biological father was this like African king who was gonna like come and bring me specifically. I wasn't thinking about my brother, but me specifically back to wherever we came from, which I imagined to be this black land where I was beloved. Like I felt so othered already as a child for being black. Like I always just so made to be aware of blackness and and like my adoptive father, you know, he went to seminary. He read the Bible and Greek for fun. My adoptive mom was a nun. And so Christianity was like, we didn't talk about it in the house ever, but we went to church all the time. And so like, I remember there was this, you know, there's just messages you get. One of the first times I was told that I was black was I was in third grade. So this was after the bankruptcy happened, after we moved, we ended up changing schools. We had previously been going to a private school, but then we didn't have enough money because we went bankrupt to go there. So we go to public school. Public school also had special education classes, which my brother was in need of. And so I'm on a playground and this girl who I'd like never talked to before, like runs up on me out of nowhere, just like, hey, do you know why you're black? And I was really curious and interested, actually, because I did not know why I was black. Like race was never talked about in my home. And so like. I was like, no, I don't. And I like sincerely thought she was about to give me this existential answer that would like tell me why I'm different from everybody around me because nobody would about to win. 
looks like me. And I have no clue why that is. And she says, well, God put you in a toaster and forgot to take you out. And she Uh, runs away. And so like, that's like how I'm coming to imagine and know my place in the world. My relationship to the divine is this person who is so forgotten that his skin is the forever mark of this. That is so profound. How you interpreted that yes. is really profound. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm a poet. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> Did, I have a question. So your adopted mom, I'm just wondering because she didn't have other children, right? So is she part of the reason I think maybe you guys were adopted? She's 45. She never had children. Yeah. Yeah. From what I'm like, understand, you know, all she'd wanted her whole life really was to be a mom. And she had had a first marriage and it was like, not good, psychotic dude. Like, I think the relationship lasted like under a year. And then, yeah, she meets adoptive dad. He's 12 years older. It's just like, maybe biologically, like, she's a little past her prime. And so these different things factoring into it. So wanting to adopt because she'd always, just always, always wanted to be a mother. So did she, and, like, if you came home from school and said something like that, I mean, I know you're living in Winchester, Oregon. I've been through there. There's, It's not a lot. <laughs> It's not very diverse. Did she help you with any of that or did you ever say? Well, I wouldn't. I said something once. The very first time I was called nigger was at also a church Mm -hmm. function. Our church was the kind of church like, like this family's house had like burnt down and our church was like, it's all right. We'll show up next weekend and build you a new one. So we're at the construction site and I'm helping one of the kids who is in that family. And he says, go get me a hammer, nigger. And I'm like six or something like that. And then I never heard that word. So I didn't understand that it was racialized, yeah. but I just understood like, it wasn't that's good. not a good word. He doesn't mean it. Like he's not saying something nice to me. So I went to my adopted mom and said that, and she's like, she just passed me on the bus. Said, it's okay. Go back to work. And so I did. And, you know, I wrote, so I'm 26 now. So I like four years ago, I wrote this poem about that situation. It was called affirmation to the dominance of non-belonging. And I say of that moment that they created the seedlings in hindsight it, for me to think that whiteness was unsafe and my family were people I can't relate to. And Christ was just a tool to keep me and my people in place. And it was really just exploring like how racialization, growing up in a racially isolated situation and then being just black and being called nigger all the time and these different things and having nobody to go to to tell me anything different, like really set the foundations for some of the foundations for different relational patterns. Then I'm like, I don't belong. And I wrote this poem and it's real beautiful. And I went to St. Louis and I've got some music set to it. And I sent it to my adoptive mom just because I was like, like I was just proud of the piece. It just sounded really beautiful. And so I wasn't like trying to like shit on her or nothing like that. Cause I think I'd already like told her that story maybe, but like, I don't know. And so I sent it to her and she hits me back. I was just like, that didn't happen. I was like, mm-hmm. what? <laughs> like I am 100% certain that this experience happened. She's like, nah, it didn't, but whatever. And then a number of months later, she gets back to me and it's like, you know, God showed me a vision and it did happen. And I'm really sorry. And so that is really like characteristic of like, she wouldn't believe me when I would say things. And so Like I learned very early not to go to them about the ways I'm feeling because Mm -hmm. they wouldn't believe me. My brother's talking about you, not my real mom. Her response is, I'm the only mother you have. 
not anything that is more adoption competent is able to hold the tension of like, yeah, you do have another mother and she's here or whatever, but you know, she, whatever it would be that she would tell me. So I didn't believe because of the evidence around me that I would be cared for if I shared anything. So I had this like, you know, as a twin as well, that affected things. Cause I like in school, you know, as we get older, people would call him the bad twin. And I was a good twin. Uh-huh. And so, like, I felt very much this responsibility to, like, be okay in all situations. And so, like, I wasn't telling nobody what was going on in my life. Like, I had people who, like, at the time I thought of as best friends, they really didn't know anything about me. Because I just didn't believe that anybody actually cared at all about any of the things that I was going through. So it's so like being the I good can relate to that to some, yeah. to some extent in my own scenario, just being compliant, I, you know? So a couple of things, your adoptive parents obviously knew who your first parents were. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a closed adoption. Did you have any contact growing up? I mean, I know you said your first That's father sent cards. Uh, tricky. Yeah. So that, did you get those cards that she just um, mentioned? I don't remember. Like I have such a bad memory. Like, my adopted mom says we got them, but I don't remember like if we got them, we probably like never talked about what it meant that this person was sending us a card or anything like that. But, you know, we got to be like, so my, my brother would be, he would be in and out the home sent away to different group homes and things like that for six to nine months at a time. Jeez. This is happening like five times between the age of like nine, 13 or 14. So... Like we got in contact with our first father. I'm told that like my brother found him on Facebook and that's how it happened. But we'd talk on the phone sometimes. And so we had like a little relationship, you know, he'd be like, you know, if you keep your grades up, I'll buy you a PlayStation. So I did. And he didn't. And that as an 11 year old, that meant a lot to me. So I was like, whatever, screw you then. Like, I don't need yeah. this relationship. I just wanted a PlayStation. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so like, I wasn't very like invested in that relationship. And then I also wasn't permitted to think about that relationship in the sense of like seeing how my brother would say things about those relationships and how our adoptive parents would react to it. So I didn't even like think it was allowed that I could actually be thinking about because I have to be good. You know, but, you know, one summer got like just real bad. You know, I adopted mom was like threatening to call the police like every week on my brother. And it was just like uh, terrible. It was very terrible, very violent, dangerous. And she never would call the police, which, you know, I am glad for because, you know, might have shot him or something right, like that. Just- but like it's this thing of like, who do you call? when you need help. And that's one of the problems with our society is like, we're told the police are the people we're supposed to call, but as a black person, I don't know. And so he ends up going back to a place called the cottage. And my adopted mom tells me that like, she promised me that he'd never come back home. And I don't remember that, but I believe her that she said that because he never did. How old were you at this point? We're like 14. And so we drive up from Roseburg to this is like a place in Corvallis. We drive up to Corvallis and to that program and everybody's have in this meeting, like our adoptive parents, my brother, the program people. And I'm just like sitting outside. Like, I don't think I was allowed in. 
then we go to go to Applebee's and my brother's in the car and like I'm a little confused, I guess. And so I'm like, oh, are we taking him back home with us? Like, what's going on? And then we have the car going to Applebee's and our biological father's there. And I'm told that he's going to take my brother back to Kentucky. And he asks if I want to come with. And I was like, wow. In my mind, like the first thing was like, hell no, I don't want to come with like the things that my brother has done. Like you're saving my life by taking him right now. So like, no, I'm not going to go with you. That's happened in my mind. But then the other thing was like, am I allowed to say yes? Like, even if I wanted to, could I? Like, I didn't know if this was a legal situation that was like happening right now. Like, I really didn't know. Like, our parents would never tell me what was going on. And this is, I realized more as I grow older, as I talk to my twin about these things. Like, like yeah, I was just kept in the dark. And so, so confusing. Like, do they want to have you as their son or do you want to go off? <laughs> so, so it's weird. So I said yes. no. And then he was like, all right. And, you know, he took my brother and they went to Kentucky and I didn't see my brother again for till a couple of years ago. So like about a decade. Um, Holy crap. Did he do better there? How does one answer that? <laughs> it was different things that he experienced, not necessarily better. I don't know the whole story, the stories that I've heard. It was very difficult for, for just very different reasons. You know, one of the things is like he was like heavily medicated when he was in Oregon living with us. And our doctor mom told me, like, he had such a high metabolism. So, like, they would just give him super high doses oh of gosh. things. And he'd be on a lot of different things. And so not not good. But this is what, what happens when, like, you're a black child in, like, a primarily white place. And they have racist medical ideas of, oh, you mm -hmm. can't feel pain. Oh, you this. Oh, you're that, you know. And so, like, this is what's happening to him. And then he goes to, to Kentucky. And he sees a doctor there and they say, you know, if you were on these high doses of things for like a few more years, you'd be dead. So he stopped taking his medicine. And that was a different like adjustment for him. That's not really for me to talk about. So, yeah, so I didn't see him for like nine years till I'm like 24. And then how was it when he was gone then with your at this point was your adoptive father had died? He had died just after like so my twin gets readopted in like By the, the fall father. yeah and in, in the fall and it was supposed to be like a legal thing but it didn't end up being that is what i'm told but then which does impact things later in the story actually and so our adoptive dad dies a number of months later and i remember like this was like i'm like a freshman or sophomore in high school and these are like the first times that i'm like really praying like just like god like if you let my dad just live to see me graduate high school i'll serve you forever like, I wasn't even just like, don't let him die ever. Like, it was just like, just give him like a couple years. And then I got you, I'm your man. And it didn't work like that. And so he died. I was a sophomore in high school. And, you know, I went, it was like March 28th at like three in the morning. And my adopted mom comes to the room, wakes me up, says he passed. I look at him, I'm like filled with some emotion. I go in the shower, I cry for like 15 minutes. I go to sleep, I go to school the next day. And then, like, I was just bored in school that day. And so, like, fifth, sixth period come around, Spanish class, and just didn't want to be there. Wanted to, to get high under the bridge with whoever was under the bridge. And I just raised my hand, Senior Tay, uh, yes, Raphael, can I leave right now? He's like, no, nah, we're in class. I was like, well, my dad just died this morning, so can I go? He's like, uh, 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 uh yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so, wow. like, there was this way that, like, you know, losing him didn't affect, like, for me, it was just like, all right, I just, I'm just going to just tell you this so that I can get out. 
I was already so numb. Like I had made the decision to become numb when I was like nine or 10 years old because my adoptive mom was not numb. She was very viscerally emotional and, you know, screaming all the time. I'm not saying it's not even justified. For one, it's like she's going through menopause as well. And then she's also got cancer at a certain point of this and her husband's dying and my brother's wild acting crazy. So like reasonably like going through some things, but like my brother like fed on that. So I was like, I can't do that. I can't have emotions. So I just like, you were just like lost in the home sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Real invisible. And it was so bad actually like that. I feared like really, like honestly, like I feared that I was like a psychopath or a sociopath because I didn't feel anything for years and years and years. I was just like, you know, something wrong with me. And it was terrible. I learned knowing now, like in hindsight, it was a survival skill. But at the mm-hmm. time, like I didn't consciously remember deciding to turn it off. I didn't remember that I had lived in such a dangerous house that it was unsafe for me to have feelings, you know? And so my dad dies, my twins readopted and and then I'm coming home from school and I'm looking at my adopted mom and I'm like, who is this person? Like, I don't know who this is. Like, I know she'll like make me dinner tonight. I know she'll like pick me up if I go somewhere I need a ride or whatever. But like, I was scared. Like, I felt like it was a, just another stranger. Like, I realized in that time period that like the relationship that occupied me the most was my twin. And then like, my adoptive father would kind of, you know, we'd go out and play basketball sometimes or we'd go fishing or on a bike ride or whatever. We didn't really know each other. Like, we didn't talk. So, like, he didn't know anything was going on with me at all. But I never talked to my adoptive mom. I didn't realize that till my twin was readopted and my adopted dad died. So, you're just alone with scary. her in the house. Like, who are yeah. you? <laughs> and you're just alone, yeah. period. Like, you alone, didn't, there's yeah. nobody in the world that you like have an intimate relationship with, really, huh? You know, I was like, really interested in women. (laughs) And so there were some different girls like, you know, I had this girl that I was like, I loved more than like anybody. Her name was Kimberly. And she was like a year younger than me. So I'm a sophomore. She a freshman and she'd always want to date. And I didn't want to date her, but I date other girls. I didn't care about the other girls. I date them, have sex relations, whatever. I didn't care about them. But it was like, Kimberly was like, no, I actually care about you. So I don't want to be in a relationship with you because I'm going to leave Roseburg. Like, I'm not going to be here forever. Like, all this is temporary. So like, I'm not going to do long distance. So like, I was like, committed to escaping already. And I was Mm -hmm. like, well, I don't think I can take you with me. And I don't want to start something that I can't finish. And so there was that kind of like barrier to like an even deeper intimacy that I had in my life. And so that was tough. And then my best friend, she was like, like my little sister, her name was Naomi she passed away mm-hmm. rest in peace but that was my girl and like we ended up moving to wisconsin which was a whole situation in and of itself like a number of years later like i'm like 18 and a year later after being in wisconsin my adoptive mom kicks me out of the house she says like you're not doing the things i tell you to do because to live with her because at first she was like you can't come with me to wisconsin like like god says like you're not supposed to come with me and i was like what and so like I was planning to stay in Roseburg. You know, I had this after school job at the Boys and Girls Club working there. And I was just like, I don't know, I'll figure stuff out. But a couple of weeks before, she said I could come with, but she's like, you have to go to therapy and you got to have a full time job. And so I was like, I have to drop out of school so I could get a GED because I wouldn't have been able to have a full time job and do school and moving to Wisconsin. And then saw a therapist. And then a year later, she's like, you're not doing what I told you to do. 
I was like, I was working more than full time, but like legally the way that the job worked, like they didn't want to have to give you benefits. So they schedule you for 34 hours. Right. They'd work mm-hmm. you for 50 hours, but on paper, you're not full time. And so she had an issue with that. And I was like, look, that's not me. Like that's them. She's like, nah. So she came me out. So I was like, going to be homeless and winter was coming up in Wisconsin. And I was just like, not trying to be homeless out there because people freeze to death. Like it's terrible. So I caught a train out to Roseburg and I was homeless out there and Naomi picked me up from the airport. You know, she could tell that something was different between us. You know, we've gone through a lot of life in us two, two years have been apart. And then the last time I saw her was a number of months later, J. Cole's album, Forest Hills Drive, had just dropped. She had bought it for me. And so we was on a smoke drive, just listening to it together, just, just having a good time. And then she said to me, like, Matt, like, I had to say something to you. And I was like, all right. She's like, and don't say I'm just high. And I was like, okay. She's like, I feel like this is going to be the last time I ever see you. And I was like, mm, no, like, it's for sure not going to be the last time you ever see me. Like, you're the only reason that I would ever come back to this town. So like, I for sure will like see you again. She's like, no, I just really feel like I'll never see you again. And she died a couple months later. I didn't see her after that situation. So I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's were you in that's, Roseburg? Did you stay in Roseburg yeah. after that on your own? So like a week or so after that, like, I think like I moved back to Wisconsin, like I had called my adopted mom, like, Hey, please let me come back. Because like, if I stay out here, like I'm gonna end up dead or an addict or whatever, like these jobs ain't hiring, like there's no opportunities for me, like, it's not gonna be good for me. So please let me come back. And she did. And then like a week after getting back, she went to the doctor and the doctor said, she had this like big, like welt on her like leg. And the doctor was like, oh, you got bit by like a brown recluse, which is like oh. a, a really poisonous spider. Yeah. And they're like, also, we just found out you have an extremely vicious form of leukemia called like type 17 and it's mutated because of the chemo that you got for the non-Hodgkin's phone you had some years back. And if you came like a week later, you'd be dead. And so then like she moves out to the hospital to live there for the treatment. And so she's out there and I'm just like, yeah, I'm about to be an orphan right now. Like what's about to happen to her. And then to me, like, so that was the whole situation. And, you know, she came out the other side. She's in remission now. So that's great. Lost most of her taste buds. So that's really unfortunate for her. Is she living in Wisconsin? Yeah. She's in like Ozaki County, which is a little outside of Milwaukee, well, north. And you are in contact with her. How's your relationship now with her? I mean, it sounds like she's trying to, maybe she has some shame and guilt, but trying to tell you things. I mean, she is now, because I told her, like, so, like, we've been pretty estranged for a number of months now. And some of it, like, you know, in the last two years, I've been processing more of, like, the implications of what it is that I'm adopted and transracially adopted. And, you know, that started because I was on Instagram one day and, like, Hannah Jackson Matthews, like, one of her reels, like, popped up or something like that. And then there was, like, this writing contest she had. And so I submitted a poem that I'd written called Closed Transracial Adoption as God's Gift. And it wasn't really celebrating it. Like the name Matthew means God's gift. So then like I won that and she publishes that on her page and it gets like hundreds of likes and a lot of people comment to talking about they can relate. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know there was other people. Whoa. <laughs> and so I just like started processing that more. And then it was hitting me like, you know, in, in my context, like, racialization has been a huge problem. Like our adopted parents thought 
we're living in a post-racial society. Meanwhile, they move us to Roseburg, which is an incredibly racist place, an incredibly racist place. Like every black person I ever met there wishes that they could get out. So terrible. And these black kids I knew, they have black families. I didn't have a black family to go back to. Like I'm going back to a white family. He doesn't know anything about this stuff that's going on. And so when Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson on August 9th, 2014, that was my birthday. And I was going on Facebook and, you know, I mentioned my adoptive sister, she's a pastor in St. Louis. So there's some different people in St. Louis that like I'm friends with on Facebook. And so when that happened, Mike Brown, like somebody taking a photo of Michael's father holding the sign saying the police just killed my son. And I'm like scrolling Facebook and I see that. And I was like, well, what just happened? But I kept going. It's my birthday. And I really didn't care, to be honest. But then my sister invites me out to St. Louis. A couple months later, I thought it was to hang out, but it wasn't. It was to participate in Ferguson October, which was a mass organized protest to get the indictment of Darren Wilson, the man who assassinated Michael Brown. You know, I got choked out in the front lines there by cops, different things happening and such and such. And I get back to Wisconsin, I'm telling my adoptive mom some of these things. And she says, what if there's a race war? Whose side do I choose? That's an odd question. That is an odd question. You know, it is, but it's not because like, when it comes to transracial adoption, but then also just in general, when it comes to like white and black relations, like a lot of white people and or adopters don't know what side they actually sit on. Like when rubber meets the road, if a revolution that comes about that, like at the end of the day, pits white people against black people, a lot of white people haven't thought about that. And so they don't know if they would choose white people or black people. And so my mom is asking this like really honest questions are incredibly violent question to ask your transracially adopted black son hey should i choose you or should i choose me so that's the other layer that's there but at the end of the day most white people that i've ever met would not actually choose black people because to choose black people would be to lose the things that they've gained because of whiteness so i'm not surprised that she asked that but going back to like the relationship so that, that really had profound implications since then of just like realizing you wanted a son. You don't care about my life experiences as a black person. It was a selfish, like a, I think Nancy Verrier talks about this. BJ Lifton talks about this. Like when you adopt, particularly adopting babies, there's a lot of layers to that, right? Like if an adoptive parent isn't facing their own infertility, if they're not, like really aware, do you want to be a parent or do you want a baby? Do you want some right. reflection of you, you know, mm-hmm. right. and that unawareness and selfishness, if you will, is going to affect that relationship. And so at any rate, yeah, no, it's, it's, that. It's, true. it's one of those things where like that definitely took a toll. On Was that kind of what the final thing of that led to an estrangement? No, because, you know, we've been in communication, but last year i'd driven out to madison wisconsin to help a friend with a construction project and i was going to meet up with my twin and my adoptive mom and our adoptive mom but then like she was like yeah you know he, he got a hangover so he don't want to come back so come i just realized like no nah, i don't actually like really want to see you i just was hoping more to see my twin because like in the last 15 years i've seen him five times and then, so if he wasn't coming i was like well i'm not that invested in you to like have you drive out here and like you're not really gonna spend five hours here, whatever. So and that was kind of more when like because for my work, like for the last number of years, like I'd travel a lot. I'd be out the country and and so we were just not like we saw each other that often anyway. She wasn't very like 
close to me in life. So I, it was just, I wasn't thinking about that relationship, even the situation of whose side you want. I didn't like really think about that until recently and just realizing like, yeah, that had profound impacts on what I imagined as the cap of our relationship. But recently, you know, I, since like October or something like that, it was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm just not trying to talk to you. Like I'd actually reached out to her and was just like telling her, because she asked like, why don't you want to see me while you're in medicine? I don't know what I said. She's like, oh, I can tell something's wrong. So what is it? And I was like, I'm not going to tell you now, maybe in a couple months. So we didn't talk for a couple months. And then I told her like, you know, to be honest with you, like I'm thinking about cutting you off like entirely out of my life. And it was a lot longer conversation than that. But that's what I was like telling her. I was like, this is really the reason why I want you to come see me. It's like, I realized like I'm just not invested or interested in this relationship. But I didn't cut her off at that point. I just told her, this is what I'm thinking about. This is why I want to see you. And, you know, she cried. It was hard to hear. And she was like, well, you know, I guess what you want to do, then whatever. And so just been thinking about that over the last number of months. And then we got in a reunion with our birth mother. Right. That's what I, we want to hear how that happened. Yeah. That was a 23 and me. I had done that. You didn't know her name, even though you're. I knew her name. I knew her name. Okay. Um, Okay. I knew both her and our first father's name ever since we were young, but no idea how to find her. Like we were told when I was like, like my brother was out the house at this point. So it was just me, but our adopted mom said that like, when I was 18, I could go to the courts and like file some stuff and find out. And I turned 18, I find out that like, nah, Kentucky says you got to be 21. So then like, I'm waiting until I'm 21. And then at that point, I, I learned more that like, oh, at Kentucky court, like they'll go and find your birth parents, but then they'll ask if your birth parents want to be united. And if they say no, then they'll come back to you and say, nah. And I was like, yeah, I'm not interested in that. So I just didn't really pursue it. So I did 23andMe last year. And Kirsta on Instagram, shout out to her. She's in Greece seeing her first family now. Her handle is Carpuzzi. And she had did this reel of just like something to do with reunion. I don't know. And I had commented like that I'm struggling trying to figure this stuff out. And she just like commented right back. Hey, if you ever need any help, like you let me know. I love helping people with this. And I was just like, you know what? I guess I can do it myself. Because I already had a couple of DNA matches on 23andMe. Like, there was two people who was like 4% and everybody else was like 0.98%. And um, I had looked them up on Facebook and it was like, they were like kids. So, so I was like, well, I'm not going to reach out to kids. Like they're not going <laughs> to After Kirsten's message, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to reach out to these kids and ask them, <laughs> do you know this woman or this man? And so I did that. And then like within an hour, somebody added me on Facebook, had the same last name, but a different first name. And it was an adult. It was like, Hey, I'm your birth mom's like nephew or something like that. And then a couple other Facebook requests and hey, I'm your auntie. I'm your auntie. I'm your cousin. I'm da da da. Wow. And then I'm on the phone with my mother's oldest sister. And you know, she was like, Tell me something. I was like, Hey, look, if I just to ask the first question, is she still alive? Cause I had asked our birth father some years back to like look for her. Cause my brother would keep asking me to like look for her. So that was even one of the reasons why I was like, all right, let me try this court thing. Cause like he was asking, I wasn't really curious. Like for me, how I felt was in hearing the stories about my birth father and my little experience with him, like I was entirely uninterested in a relationship with him and entirely uninterested in finding out who my first mother was. But my brother kept like hounding me about it. So I was like, all right, to shut you up, like I'll look into it a little bit. So I'd ask him again to like, 
or for the first time I asked our first father, like, hey, can you look? And he gets back to me some weeks or months later and I was like, yeah, I don't know. I think she fell into drugs. Like, maybe she's not alive. I don't know. I don't know. So I was like, all right, cool, buttoned up, whatever. So I just had to ask the auntie, like, hey, she's still alive. Because the last thing I heard is maybe she ain't even alive. She's like, yeah, she is alive. She's in Illinois right now. And uh, here's her number. And did it that. So that night, that I'm on the phone with her. And you know, it was just this beautiful moment, really overwhelming. And we do look alike. You know, when I was a kid growing up, my adopted mom would tell me that I looked like my mother. And they said that my brother looked like our father. And I'd never seen pictures of my mother. Because it, eventually we got connected with our birth father through Facebook, I've seen pictures of him. But there wasn't any pictures of our birth mother because, you know, he was married to some other woman. And so she's mistress and you ain't going to find out on, on his Facebook page. So I always just like wonder, like, who is this person that I'm constantly told that I look like? And so seeing her, I was just like, wow, wow, yeah, I can kind of see that. I'm surprised your adopted mom didn't have a picture, you know, since they knew who she was and stuff. It's so crazy to me i am told that they were sneaky people our adopters i'm told that mm-hmm. our birth father spent thousands of dollars trying to find us and then eventually when he found us and got in communication with us like they were trying to visit us but then whenever it was close to visit time our doctor's parents wouldn't answer the phone anymore and so it's this thing where and it's probably isn't all that it is but it's probably is a big part of it where it's like my adopted mother, she just always wanted her own family. So, yeah. and this is a conversation we had a couple of days ago. Where I was just like, you know, like the problem with like the way you parented us all is like, you did not imagine that you were raising and stewarding someone else's child. You just thought we were yours. And so that's why a lot of this stuff is happening the way that it's happened. And the way it's happened is because of that. And so we started talking more. Well, then, cause then like, talking to my first mother and she's like she was saying that her and i could go to therapy together if that would be helpful but i hadn't said that i had any like ill feelings or anything i need to work through but she's just proactive and just like hey like if whatever we got to do i'm in this for the long haul like we can do that so i was just thinking about therapy and i was like oh what about therapy with my adoptive mom like maybe that could help the relationship and i was like reached out to her and was just like yo if we don't start with this relationship like i think we got to do therapy and She's like, yeah, anything we got to do, like, we can do that. And then I sent her some people. And then I realized, like, yeah, I already got capacity for doing that therapy specifically. I don't have the emotional capacity, the bandwidth to do that just because, like, yeah, I'm not sure that I'm that invested in the relationship, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I know she would be like, if we went to the session, she'd show up to the session. But it's just different patterns in the relationship where I'm just like, just because you're there don't mean that that anything getting worked on, you know? And so I told her, I said, you know what? Can't do therapy. But we've just been talking in the last week, actually, because I'm working on this memoir. And I'm just like, hey, I don't remember things. And there's things that I know I don't know. And I need you to tell me these things. And so for the first time in my life, she's like seemingly a lot more honest about things. And that's just, in my mind, it's just like, I need to know these things so I can paint a better picture while I'm writing this book. Like, we're not talking on some, like, relational repair level. Like, maybe we, like, talk a little bit about that in the conversation, but, like, really what I'm trying to talk about is, like, help me remember because I blocked some more stuff out. And your first mother, is your brother also talking to her? And are there plans to meet in person? He has met her. Yeah, he met her a few days after we got in contact with her because he's in Wisconsin and she's in Illinois. So she drove out to see him. So he's met her. 
I think like he talks to her a lot more frequently than I do. Like he's the kind of person like like you, uh, Luis. You was talking about or forget which one. Your son is like calls you every day. He's driving home from work. Oh, that's Sarah. Oh, that's yeah. my Sarah. son. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not that kind of person. I don't talk to people like often. Like I'm like maybe we can talk like every other week or whatever. And she told me she's like that's my son twice a week. <laughs> Like, I'd love to talk to you twice. I was like, to be honest, no, we can't do that. <laughs> do you have any siblings yeah. through her yeah, and your birth father? Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. So like through her, her only other child is older than my brother and I. She, yeah, I won't say her name, but there's so we have a sister. And then on our first father's side, he's had a number of different baby mamas and wives. But so like, I know of one line, there's like four three brothers and a sister and that's who like you know my twin is readopted like he's readopted into this family so he's like meeting them as siblings and stuff and so we friends on facebook we don't like talk like that but like i know who they are they know who i am i'm told my little brother like really looks up to me and wants to be like me and so but like we don't talk i'm really not like a keep in contact person that's you and your story are still evolving it sounds like yes there's, there's still a lot to come <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I feel like I'm in this place now of just like, yeah, trying to like reclaim a lot of different things, whether it's memory or whether it's like agency or even just blackness. There's a way that in the way that my adoption took place, that what was practiced as well was cultural genocide. And so it's a reclaiming of the culture that I was severed from. Um, Which wasn't so, yeah. even that long ago, right? I mean, no. it's one thing and it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Keep fighting that fight. And, you know, maybe that's your place, right? Like being that advocate and having that kind of change. And maybe, you know, and the people that you saw on Instagram and all of that, people are looking at you now. Yeah. That's what's wild to me. Cause, you know, yeah, yeah. I published in Severance and then published in Visible and, and yeah, people just be reaching out to me and, yeah, just looking up to me. And that's wild because, yeah, I'm, I'm nobody special. You are somebody special because I think... We are all somebody special. That's right. Nobody that, like any of us. That's anywhere. right. And, and <laughs> you're only one of us in the universe, right? And you're telling a story that probably so many... I mean, there's probably kids right now who would listen to it and be like, this is what I'm going through and I can't say anything in my home. Yeah. And no one's understanding me. And, and you know, that's what I do it for. Because like when I look at... You know, I've been in this kind of adoption aware space for the last two years and there's just not that many black voices. And then when there are black voices, it's usually black women, which is great. Love black women. And so like just different intersections that I bring to it, like people, there's just not somebody doing it the way that I'm doing it, I guess. Like, mm -hmm. so I'm just trying to be the person who could save the life of 13 year old me. It means a lot to me when people tell me that like my work is meaningful to them because mm -hmm. like I make things because I love making things, but I also love making an impact. And so that's what it's all about. Well, really, really appreciate you being on the podcast and giving us this time and being so vulnerable and honest with your story. Really, yeah. thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. For I feel like me. I'm going to be thinking about it all day. Like, I, I know. Wanna, <laughs> I'm going to keep following you. I want to see how everything's going to play out for you. And will you keep up with us and update yeah. us? 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's do it. We are on Twitter, so we can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just feel like you really are making bigger difference than you know. And long term, I think in your life, you're very young. You're going to go mm-hmm. forward and do big things. I just feel yeah. it from you. That's what like, excites me. That's what I'm like coming to be aware of. Of like, oh, dang, I'm really only 26. Like, That's I'm you are young. Like, <laughs> I got so much to do, you know, like. I'm really excited for this next period in my life because, you know, even as an artist, like I'm just becoming more aware of my own story. And that's whether it's the memoir, I'm writing children's books now, like I've done film, I write poetry, I'm doing different things that are all coming back to these stories that like I wish I had seen when I was a kid. And so like, that's what just lights my day up. I wrote this children's book, it's called Blackbird Misses His First Mother. And it's because, like, I never see children's books that about adoption that, like, really reckon with adoptee grief and, like, that awareness. Like, ever. Never seen them things. Mm-hmm. And so I just, like, wrote one. And it was inspired. I wrote it for this five-year-old girl who's a transracial adoptee who I know. We have dinner with their family every Friday night. And so I wrote it. I showed it to my wife. She's like, you got to send that to the mom right now. And so I did. And she was like, yeah, this is the most meaningful gift that, like, one of the most meaningful gifts anybody's ever given to us. And, like, we read it with the girl, with our daughter, and she felt really seen. And she was like, oh, she has a first mom, too. Wow. And, and so Aww. it was like, wow, wow. So, like, yeah, yeah, I'm so excited for whatever is to come because I feel like it's got to be something. I ain't put in oh, this for much sure. work for nothing. <laughs> you have the wisdom. You know, you went through the hard stuff and you have the wisdom of, like, I feel like you're an old soul in a very young, vibrant way. You know, you have your whole existence to, like, make difference and change. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And please keep us informed of what you're doing. We'll be seeing it anyway. <laughs> Hope so. <laughs> we will. <laughs> We're happy to meet you. And thank you for coming on. We're so glad you did. Yeah. Thank thanks you. for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Matthew. Talk Bye. to you soon. Bye. Bye. Yeah. All I can just be silent for a second. That was... He's an incredible person with a important story. He really is. I'm really happy that we met him and just were even introduced to him through, it was really through Severance. I read the Severance, yeah. Severance, but now I'm following him and reading everything. And I'm just, it makes, now I'm going to look at his poetry in a whole different way because I was on his site earlier. And I just, you know, I just want to give him a hug. I like how he said he was doing the work for the 13-year-old him. I know. I really like that. I really like that. That's great. It's like inner child work for. Yeah. And there's so much healing he can help with other people. And these are big topics, the transracial, Mm -hmm. you know, adoption and talking to your kids and the book he wrote for the family he sees on Friday nights. And I mean, yeah, full circle. I hope the people who need to listen to these things, listen to them. Yes. I hope so too. (laughs) Well, Well, another great episode. episode. See you soon. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time. Thank you.